Uh, it's a book in which Paul is, the apostle is writing to this group of people who had gotten saved. They met Jesus. Their lives were transformed. Uh, they realized that God had given them salvation freely. They didn't deserve it. It wasn't something they earned, and yet it was a gift of God. God just freely, lovingly brought them into this relationship with himself. And yet what had happened was these Galatian people had sort of fallen into um, a sense of degraded and broken down religion, meaning they began to revert back to ways whereby they felt like they needed to earn God's favor. They need to, needed to do things to keep God from being angry with them. And typically, because the default mode of our heart is some sort of degraded form of religion, um, sort of in connection, or I would say even in contrast to uh, undefiled religion, like James is going to talk about, pure and undefiled religion is this, but we have the default mode of our heart is to go towards defiled religion, which is our way to try to revert back to relating to God, whereby things that we do to get God's attention or things that we do to get God to love us or things that we do work desperately hard to get God to not be angry at us. And the reality is, is that this is the way that most of us live our lives. We live our lives oftentimes thinking that the things that happen to our lives, different types of things that bring us pain or hardship or difficulty are sometimes brought about because God's angry with us. It's God's way of judging us. And we oftentimes think like that. But if you're a Christian, what you need to understand, one of the reasons why Paul is writing this letter is that God's judgment is not upon you if you're a Christian. God already took out his judgment on his son. God is not angry with you. He's not angry with you. He's not out to destroy you. In fact, quite the opposite. And if you're a Christian and you think that, what's happened is that you've actually fallen for a lie. You believed a lie that the devil has told you that God is angry with you, that God hates you, that God is out to judge you, that you will never be identified as anything but the sin that you yourself have done. So if you are a rape victim, you will always be just a rape victim. If you were a pervert, you will always be a pervert. If you were an alcoholic, you will always be an alcoholic. If you were a glutton, you will always be a glutton. If you are somebody that does not know how to spend money, you will always be just somebody that just squanders and wastes money. And that becomes your identity. And so oftentimes you fight desperately hard to rid yourself from that shame. And rather than just simply receiving what God says about you in the gospel, you're desperately trying hard to get God to like you, to get God to keep from being angry with you, to get God to somehow just accept you. And what Paul's trying to say, that's already been done. God already loves you. God has already accepted you. God has already brought you into Jesus. In fact, God loves you in the same type of love by which he has for a son. You can't top that. You can't improve upon that. It's, it's ultimate. It's an ultimate love. That's how much God loves you if you're in Christ, as you're in Christ. And what Paul is writing to this group of Galatian believers is to say, stop trying to rely upon religious activity to get God to like you, let alone love you. He already does. Because here's the problem. When you forget the gospel, when you forget what God has done for you, and we've said this all along, the gospel is simply this. It's that God created all things. begins with creation. It moves on into the fall. That even though God created all things, we as sinners, we have fallen in the same path as Adam. We've rebelled against God, which has brought about, brought about in our lives a curse or a judgment, but God has sent Jesus to redeem us through the cross, but then ultimately God is in the process of restoring all things. That's the gospel in short. In other words, it's, to be, it's, it's an event that is to be proclaimed and to, a, to be announced. Christianity is not what you have to do for God to get God to like you. That's religion. That's defiled religion. Christianity is an announcement of what God has already done for you through Jesus. Do you understand that? Because if you understand that, that actually brings about a deep sense of peace in your heart, a deep, overwhelming, abiding joy in your life, and it also couples with humility. When you don't get the gospel, when you actually think that you are accepted by God on the basis of what you do, then you will always find yourself in a place where you're never secure because you never know if what you've done is enough, right? And you're never really certain. 
You're never really confident. And not only that, those type of people oftentimes become the most cantankerous, abusive, mean-hearted, mean-spirited people because in their minds, they're made right with God on the basis of what they do. And so therefore, they're looking at everybody else just to make sure that you're doing what I'm doing. And if you're not doing what I'm doing, then I have the right to judge you because everybody knows that God only accepts you on the basis of the things that I'm doing. And therefore, God accepts me, but he doesn't accept you. So therefore, I can look upon you with contempt. That's exactly what the Pharisees did. It's not the way the gospel works. It's not walking in step with the gospel. It's a horrible place to be. So one of the reasons why oftentimes Christians, churches, can sometimes be very toxic places. The issue is that there is a misunderstanding of the gospel. There's a misunderstanding of what God has already done for you and a belief and a trust and a confidence in that that brings about a settledness in your heart. That's what God wants to do in your life. Do you know that gospel? Do you know what God has done for you? Have you lived it? Have you believed it? Do you trust it? So here's what Paul's going to say. If you believed it, if you've trusted it, if you're living according to it, what will happen is your life will then begin to look a certain way. So Galatians chapter 6, Paul's going to basically list out in sort of kind of a, a fashion where Paul's kind of jumping from thought to thought to thought. It's almost like bullet points. And when you read through it, which we will in a moment here, you'll kind of find out what I'm talking about, that there's seemingly all these different, what would almost sometimes look like disconnected thoughts that Paul's going to throw out. Well, most scholars and Bible teachers would look at it this way, that what Paul's doing is he's laying down various um, attributes. What happens if the gospel is understood in your life? I'll call them gospel implications. All right, these are gospel implications. In other words, if you get the gospel, or maybe better yet, if the gospel has gotten a hold of you, this is what your life will look like. You will begin to live in accordance with the things that Paul is going to identify. But here's what I want to make certain that we're very careful of. There's a tendency, I think, in Christian circles to try to live out gospel implications without first and foremost realizing or engaging gospel transformation. Here's what I mean. There's a tendency for us, I mean, look at the way oftentimes if you read your Bible, if you're the type of person, maybe you grew up in a house where maybe you had your parents or whatever, you had a youth leader that told you, you got to read your Bible every day. There's a tendency sometimes for when we read our Bibles, we read our Bibles from a perspective of saying, we want to read devotional things. It's one of the reasons why a lot of times people, you know, don't ever tackle big books like Leviticus, they're really scary. They talk about blood a lot. We freak out by those types of things. So therefore, it's a whole lot easier to just read through the Psalms because the Psalms are easy, and the Psalms you know, tell us, you know, sing to the Lord. I'm like, okay, I'll sing. Uh, shout to the Lord. All right, I'll shout. Clap to the Lord. All right, I'll sh- clap. You know? And we, we read those things, and those little like, indicatives, those little things that just tell us what to do, we read those. We're like, I can do that. It's easy. But the bigger picture of like, trying to find out what Leviticus is all about is a little bit more difficult. Here's what ends up happening, is we oftentimes like to read a Bible for what it tells us to do, and so therefore what ends up happening, or a danger that can end up happening, is the Bible becomes this rule book, primarily a rule book, whereby you read it to try to figure out what you've got to do for God. So this is what I'm going to talk about, gospel implications. There's a tendency for people to try to understand what the gospel wants me to do, and so I try to live according to what the gospel wants me to do, but here's the problem. You've never been transformed by the gospel. You've never fully understood it. So here's what ends up happening. It's a a big word. Um, I'll I'll explain it to you in a second. So the next slide that we'll see, there's a guy by the name of Christian Smith. He wrote a book called Soul Searching. And he he coins this phrase. It's called moralistic therapeutic deism. It's a big phrase. I'll break it down for you. Moralistic basically means moralism, meaning you live according to this higher standard whereby you have this particular idea in your mind whereby there's a better way to live, there's a better way to act, there's a better way to treat people. We'll call that moralistic, moralism, all right? Um, Therapeutic, meaning you do this because it's fueled by a sense in your heart whereby you know something's not right and you want to make it right. Therefore, uh, it's therapy for yourself to act a certain way, to do a certain thing, to go to church, to read a Bible, to have a quiet time, to give money away, to help somebody out, to help an old lady cross the road, to bake someone cupcakes, to do something nice because it's therapy. You know what I'm talking about? 
Sometimes some of the most generous people that like to give money away are the ones that have the most guilty conscience. They're not giving out of generosity because they love. They're giving because there's deep sin in their heart and it's their way to try to self-atone for their sin. So they think the more they give away, the better they feel about themselves. That's therapeutic, okay? So moralistic, therapeutic, deism. Deism just means that there's a God. There's some sort of overarching deity or God or higher power, whatever you want to call it. It's overarching all this stuff. He broke it down basically into these five particular points. I want to read them to you real quick because the reason why I want to make sure that we understand this is that if you tend to just live out gospel implications without gospel transformation first, then this is what you'll do. You get that? You will become somebody that lives out moralistic, therapeutic deism. You'll live according to certain moralistic ideals that the Bible sets forth, I mean, th- this, is, this is like the youth pastor maybe preaching to the kids saying, here's what a Christian is, kids. Christians are people that only listen to Christian music. They don't smoke weed. They don't, you know, drink to get drunk. Uh, you do certain things. You read your Bible. You have quiet times every day. You do those things because that's what good Christians do. So what ends up happening is you walk away, and in your mind you think good Christians don't drink to get drunk. Good Christians don't smoke weed. Good Christians give money away. Good Christians forgive people. Good Christians read their Bible, and that's it. So here's the point. Here's where it gets a little bit sticky. Do good Christians do those things? Yeah, they do, actually. They absolutely do. I mean, look at, look at old saints that are like in their 80s, 90s, been walking with Jesus for like 60 years. They do those things. They read their Bibles, all right? They love Jesus. They give away. They get the gospel. Their lives are changed. But here's the problem. Just because you do those things, does that make you a Christian? No. So you can do those things with the hopes of doing them, expecting God to like you. That's religion. So I want to make certain that as we kind of tackle this last chapter, chapter 6, where Paul is going to be giving these gospel implications, I want to make sure first and foremost that what you don't do is you don't hear these gospel implications and be like, I got to do this. I got to forgive people. I got to help people. I got to carry people's burdens. I got to be nice. I got to give money away. I got to do all these things because that's what good Christians do. Don't do that without first and foremost making certain that you grasp chapters 1 through 5 first of what God's done for you. Make sure that there's gospel transformation in your heart first, and then out of gospel transformation comes these gospel implications. It will set you on this course, or I'll tell you what will happen. If you try to live out gospel implications without first gospel transformation, one of two things will happen to you. First, you will either fall into despair, where you will look at your life and you'll think, gosh, I'm I'm supposed to forgive people, but I hate people, man. They're jerks. They mistreat me. They're not nice. Maybe some gnarly things have happened to you, and you're just, you're overwhelmed with grief, but then you have this constant burden over you that's like, I gotta be good. I gotta forgive, and you know, you got your mom screaming on your throat. You gotta forgive them. What are you doing? And your pastor's yelling at you. You gotta forgive them, and you got everybody yelling at you. You gotta forgive, and yet in your heart, because you have not been transformed by the gospel yet, you haven't understood what the gospel meant to you or what Jesus did for you, all you've got are these uh, implications that you're trying to live by, and you will be crushed under the weight of this morality, and you'll fall into despair. It's one of the reasons why I think a lot of times people leave churches, and they say, I don't ever want to go back to church because I hate church, because church was nothing more than a bunch of rules, people tell me what to do, I couldn't live according to it. I felt bad all the time. I felt like everybody else was these good Christians. I wasn't a good Christian. I didn't feel like singing. I didn't feel like loving. I was never giving my money away. I wasn't giving my time away. I was just, I was just stingy and I felt really bad. So I never want to go back into that group of people ever again because you've fallen into despair. You were trying to live out gospel implications without gospel transformation. The second thing that will happen to you is you will become very arrogant and prideful and you look at everybody else with contempt. You'll actually think you're living according to gospel implications, but in reality, you'll treat everybody with just contempt. And you're actually sinning the worst sin of all, because that was a sin of Satan, pride. So I want to make certain that you, first of all, get gospel transformation first, and then as it leads into the trajectory of gospel implications. So what that means, first and foremost, is has the gospel transformed you? Let me put it another way. Do you know what God has done for you? Do you know that? Do you know what God has done for you that 
God accepted you in Jesus through Christ on the basis of nothing else except God's free, loving, generous, kind grace. You didn't earn it. I mean, you were a heretic, and yet God says, "Ah, you know, their theology is a little bit off, but I'll accept them anyhow. God looks at you and says, you're filthy. You got filthy rags. They think they look really fly, but they're not. They look ugly. I'll accept them anyway. That's how God does it. That's how God works. What happens is when you try to tell yourself, I got to accept everybody else because that's just what good Christians do, without first and foremost understanding that the reason why you accept other people is because God accepted you and you were just as bad, if not worse, than everybody else. And yet God accepted you. That's gospel transformation. But then it leads into gospel implication. So I'm going to read the passages that we'll be taking a look at around verse 1 all the way down to about verse 6. Uh, we'll be taking a look at a handful of these verses. We'll kind of go through them pretty quickly, and I'm going to pray, and then we'll get to work on this. So the first verse says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens. So fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. And the one who is taught the word must share all good things with him who teaches. God, we ask you right now that you would just give us your wisdom, give us your understanding, and let our hearts be like soil that's been plowed up and broken up and big rocks and obstacles would be removed so that our lives would be transformed by the seed of your word bringing real transformation to our lives. God, that's where it all begins. We need Jesus. We don't need rules. We don't need to be told what to do first and foremost. We need Jesus. We need Jesus to reveal to us the state and the condition of which our heart was in, in sinfulness and brokenness. And yet, God, that's how you received us. That's how you accepted us. So therefore, God, that helps us to tap into your account of grace so that we can find others that are broken, heretical, destroyed, crushed, and oppressed, and welcome and love and accept them in the same way that we are welcomed, loved, and accept through Jesus. So God, help us to understand first and foremost how the gospel transforms, and so then ultimately we can see how it causes us to live. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I want to go back up real quick and take a look at some of those uh, moralistic therapeutic deism list, and then we'll be jumping into this. So take a look at a, a couple of the examples that we have here. The first one, uh, it's this idea that there's a God that exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life. So in other words, there it's, it's not atheism. These are not people that just don't believe in any God. They believe in a God. Uh, they believe he has power and some sort of authority, though maybe limited. Uh, the second thing is that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible. So there's an overriding belief that somehow that God, whoever God is, whatever God is, whatever she may be, he has this desire, she has this desire that we live good, that we treat each other with dignity, value, and respect. And so therefore we kind of rope ourselves into this, uh, this mentality of being nice to people third thing is that uh, the central goal in life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. So this is where you kind of move into the therapeutic element where it's like when you feel bad about yourself, the goal is to try to get yourself into feeling good about yourself. And that's oftentimes the way that we think. It's one of the reasons why our culture is the way it is. It's a very service-oriented culture, and it's geared and catered towards making certain that you get what you feel like you're entitled to or get what you feel like you deserve. So we all kind of feel inside like, I deserve a break today, so you go get a hamburger from some cheap you know, hamburger joint because, after all, you deserve that. And so the point of the matter is, is we have this mentality that that's how it works, that we deserve to have a good, happy life. And so therefore, we try to figure out ways to make that happen. The fourth thing is, is that God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when needed to resolve a problem. So most of the time, practically, these type of people live as practical atheists, meaning even though by nature or thought, we don't necessarily exclude the reality of God, but practically we live as atheists, meaning we don't live with God as the center point of our life or as God is the son of our 
you know, solar system whereby our lives revolve around him, that God is just another planet that is out there. We're the sun in the middle of our solar system, and God's just one of the planets that sort of is out there orbiting around our life. And so when things go really bad and we're not able to somehow pick ourselves up or drugs aren't working anymore or more sex isn't taking its toll, it's not helping us, or money's not solving our problems or constantly upgrading the goods that we already have isn't really answering the final call and the deep pain and hardship and dissatisfaction in our heart, we just kind of whip out God. We're like, I'll go to God. Maybe God will help. And so we go to church. We start making bargains with God. We're like, God, I'll, I just, I need this job. I've done everything I could. So I'll give money away. I'll help the poor. I'll do whatever I got to do. Uh, just, just help me get this thing. So God becomes sort of your therapist or God becomes your means. And he's not really your God by which you bend your knee to and submit your life to. Uh, as his, as he would be the supreme authority of your life. He's just an addition. The fifth thing is that good people go to heaven when they die. So this mentality is that, in reality, that God just wants us to be good. So as long as we're good, and as long as we live according to his moral value and his code of ethics, then God you know, will accept us. And the problem is, is that oftentimes this breaks down very quickly because we all live in a world where there's a lot of suffering, there's a lot of hardship. And so because we have this proneness to think that I deserve and I'm entitled to a good life, so rather than looking at suffering as really something that God may gift us with. Have you ever thought about suffering as a gift from God? The Bible tells us that's what it is. But when you think of yourself as being the center of your solar system, gift actually, be, you know, suffering becomes a curse that you want to get out of. You don't want suffering. You do everything you can to get away from suffering, to avoid suffering. You try to avoid it at all costs because, after all, you deserve everything. You're entitled to a very happy life and to be a good person, so somehow you want to be a good person. I'm telling you right now, what I just described to you is the way many, many Christians think. They just think to go to church, to live a good life, to act certain things, to live according to a particular moral code, to walk according to certain ethics, then God will be happy with me, he'll accept me, he'll like me, and as long as I don't tick him off, then everything will be fine. And if I do something wrong, then maybe God will just bring a little bit of a judgment, might, just might be a little bit of a judgment, I'll feel kind of under the weight of this thing for just a little bit of time, but then, you know, I'll beg him, I'll plead with him, I'll give him some money, I'll pay him off, I'll do whatever I can, and somehow I'll get back into good favors with him. And that's the way most of us live as practical atheists, rather than people who understand the gospel and are transformed by the gospel, that we don't need to buy God off. You can redeem yourself. We're not redeemed by gold or precious stones. We don't have enough money. We can't make bargains with God. We can't be like, God, I'll give you my life. You really think that God's impressed by your life? God's like, I created angels. You don't even know what an angel looks like. God's like, I created legions of them, millions of them. They're stronger than you. You're like, I know how to write poetry. God's like, I created quasars. Are you kidding to me? Are you kidding me? You don't impress me. We can't bargain with God. We can't make deals with God somehow that God will accept our offer. That's oftentimes the way that we live. So the point of the matter is, is that we have to first get the gospel that God freely, lovingly, eagerly, have you ever thought of God eagerly accepting you? He's eager to embrace you through Jesus. See, some of you, like, you wrestle with that. You're like, I don't, I don't know if God really likes me. No, more than that, he actually loves you. That's the whole book of Galatians. It's like God doesn't just like you. He loves you. He actually adopted you. You know that people who adopt kids, they're amazing people, let alone. Just the sheer fact that somebody walks into some sort of orphanage and says, I want to adopt that child. You, you adopt the child not because you're the brightest, the best, the most, you know, best-looking person out there and that they're the, you know, the, they're the one that just sparkles and shines above everybody else. You're like, I want that one. The reality is, is that they're all in desperate need of somebody. And that's what God does. He comes to us and chooses and loves and accepts us in Jesus. And that's what the transformation is all about. We didn't ask to be received. We didn't ask to be transformed. God just did it. He changed our heart so that when we called upon him, God changed me. We did that because even that very faith that we had, God gave us that faith so that we would trust in him. 
It's, it's all this amazing gift of our great and loving, gracious God. God calls us to just simply believe and trust it. And so the gospel implications are going to rise out of gospel transformation. Understanding who we are in Christ will now begin to set us on this trajectory of life whereby we live out these various and specific ways. The first thing that we looked at uh, in verse 1, we actually looked at this a couple weeks ago, so I'm not going to go back into it. But in short, here's what he says. He says, those of us that are caught in some sort of spiritual sin or trap, he says, restore these type of people. So if somebody's trapped, help them out. Help them out. Don't shun them. Don't excommunicate them. Don't blog about them. Don't call up your friends and be like, hey, did you know so-and-so? You know, they're, they're trapped in great sexual sin, and they might even be a pervert. So let's just, I just want to call you that and tell you to pray for them. Like, that, that's, that's called gossip, all right? That's not helping anybody. That's actually just under the guise of Christianity trying to just gossip about somebody. It's not really helping somebody. God wants us to help people out to actually help those that are caught in various types of burdens and difficulties and hardships, trapped in, by sin. That's what verse one's all about. So those of us that have been transformed by the gospel help out those that are stuck. Why? Because all of us were stuck at one point. Do you know that? If you're a Christian here today, do you, do you feel the weight of that? That one point in your life, you were stuck and trapped in sin. You couldn't get out. That's why Paul's going to say, you who are dead in trespasses and sins and were separated from the life of God. God, who is rich in grace and mercy, saved you. You know that that was all of us at one point? We were stuck. We were trapped. We weren't seeking after God. God was seeking after us. So what Paul's going to say is that if you get the gospel, meaning you understand that God was seeking after you, then what Paul's going to say is that when you see other people that are also stuck, brothers and sisters, especially Christians that are stuck in sin, your desire should be just like God's desire was to you to want to help them out, not destroy them, not attack their character, but to help them. Okay. The second thing that we're going to take a look at here today is he's going to be talking about bearing one another's burdens. So gospel implication also involves bearing one another's burdens. Verse 2, he says this, bear one another's burdens, so fulfill the law of Christ. I love this particular passage because he says, so fulfill the law of Christ. I kind of wrestled with that, trying to figure out what that meant. But in reality, here's what I think Paul is trying to say, is that when you actually love other people and you're going out of your way to help others that are crumbling underneath the weight of this burden, which is what it means, that these people are underneath the weight of the burden, and it's crushing them. It could be sin. It could be a disease that is uh, kind of coupled with fear. So fear's crushing them. It could be some sort of religious experience or religious system that were, they were involved in, and it was crushing them. Uh, we had someone share their testimony last week at the baptism who is underneath the crushing weight of Mormonism, and God rescued them from that. I was talking to a gal, first service, who was for 10 years a Jehovah's Witness, crushed underneath the weight of Jehovah's Witness group. Uh, last month, God miraculously saved her. Um, she was just telling me, first service, she goes, you don't understand, people don't walk away from Jehovah's Witness and walk into Jesus. She goes, I'm, I'm a miracle. I don't feel like I made a choice to just come out of Jehovah's Witness and co start coming to Calvary slow. I feel like God rescued me. Like, you've been a Christian for a month, and you already got the lingo down. Good job. Like, that's exactly it. God rescued you. It was a rescue mission. God rescued you. But that's the truth for all of us. All of us, we were rescued. And so what he's saying is that if, if, if you were rescued underneath some sort of weight or burden in your life, then we have this obligation out of love to rescue other people that are underneath these weights and burdens and difficulties and hardships, struggles, and fears. Why? Because it's the Christian duty? No, because that's what God did to us. So we have this great joy. Our bank account has been made joint with God's. So when we see other people in burdens and trap, we can say we have a bank account. It's not our bank account, but it's tapped into God's bank account, whereby we have enough resources to help those that are struggling underneath the weight of various types of difficulties and hardships. That's what God calls us to do, to live out, to follow that. 
So it could be issues of sin, sickness, suffering, religious type situations that you're falling underneath the weight of these things. And God's going to say that this is how the church works, that it's to help those people that are falling underneath the weight of these burdens. He says, this fulfills the law of Christ. So here's what I think Paul's trying to say, is that if we live like this, you don't need laws to tell people, hey, don't hate on people. Because if, listen, laws don't hate people, don't, don't eat, they're obsolete when you have a group of people that are already loving each other. Does that make sense? So in other words, loving each other to the point where it's tangible. You're helping others that are falling underneath the crushing weight of burdens. When you're doing that, you don't need some law being imposed upon you saying, just be kind, don't rip other people off, and you know, don't steal from other people, and don't be rude to other people. That if you're living this out, there, there are no laws. You don't need any laws. Because you're living out the law of Christ. Which Jesus says, really the law is summarized in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself and you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and might. He says, man, if you live that, then what you have is a community that's beautiful. So I want to do something before we go on to the next point is uh, I want to make sure that we're doing this and we're not just theoretically preaching it and talking about it and then walking out of here and forgetting about it because we're just already thinking about lunch. I want to make certain that we do this. So if there's anybody here right now in your life right now, there are burdens that you brought in here because the reality is in a group this big, there are always people that come in here all the time with various types of burdens. I know our typical greeting here in America is like, how you doing? I'm great. And yet reality is, underneath that, I'm great, is a heart that's suffering, that's struggling. There's some great, severe difficulties you're going through, maybe sins that you're trapped in. Maybe there's issues in a family relationship that have just been spoiled and broken, and you're devastated as a result of that. Maybe you have a sickness, or you think you have a sickness, and there's fears that are plaguing your heart and your soul. You can't even think straight. Maybe there's certain things in your life that whatever it is, you're just burdened underneath the weight of those things. I want to just ask those of you, if that's you, if there's any type of burden like that that you're going through right now, just stand up where you're at. I want to have some people around you. We're going to pray for you in a second here. Anybody at all, just stand up right where you're at. We're going to pray for you. Thanks for standing. Appreciate that. First person's always the hardest one, huh? Good job. Stand up, guys. Any of you, guys, gals, whoever, we're just going to pray for you. All right, that's it. Nothing weird. But this is the church, and this is, this is how the church works. And, and, and I don't want to be negligent in not praying for people because it's like, we, I, just, we I get through a Bible study. You know, it's like, no, this is, this is the church. We've got to love each other, care for one another, bear one another's burdens. So anybody else, you just some sort of burden that you feel yourself under. Maybe it's a, some sort of a strained relationship, and you still think about it. Maybe not be thinking about it right now, but this afternoon you're going to be thinking about it. You're going to realize it's a strain between you and your mom, you and a husband, you know, a child, maybe a child and your mom. Some sort of sin, some sort of weight. Maybe it's with an ex-husband, ex-wife. It's just a burden. We want to be here to pray for you guys. Anybody else? Just stand up. Cool. Um, the rest of you guys that are around, um, if you guys can just lay hands on these people, just pray for them. Um, and if you were standing up and, and in the swarm of people, you kind of got missed, um, why don't you raise your hand so that people can see where you're standing. So raise your hand real high. Um, make sure you find someone, lay hands on them, and just pray for them. I want you guys to pray out loud over them right now so you guys can just go right now, pray over them. I'll give you guys a minute, and then, um, then I'm going to pray overall, and then we'll get back. But let's just do this. Go ahead. <laughs>
God, you know the burdens that your, your people carry. You know them even more intimately than, than those of us that are praying for these people. You know them. You know these burdens, God, because you created these people. You love them. And Lord, right now, we just want to pray that you would just, just even help them to know that by hands even being laid upon them, that they would know that they're part of a family. And that family is rooted in God as our Father. That, God, you love us and the means by which you want to help sustain us and relieve burdens in our lives is through your people through confession confession and confessing our sins and confessing our our cares before you because you care for us and so god i pray right now that you would just fall afresh upon the hearts of your sons and of your daughters that are feeling this burden whatever it may be in their life god release it from their life god if anything just give them the grace they need to endure it so help when we pray right now. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys, for standing. The next thing I want to take a look at, I'm going to go through this one really quickly. In verse 3 through 4, the gospel implications also involve having a proper view of oneself. Verse 3 says this, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Um, D.A. Carson, a theologian, said this. And I kind of like the way he put it. He says this, You're not what you think you are. But then he says, What you think you are. All right, You're not what you think you are, but what you think you are. So in other words, the idea is that whatever it is that you think in your mind that you are, that's the way that you're going to act. That's how you're going to live out. So our tendency, the way this works out in day-to-day life, is we have this propensity within our lives to compare ourselves with other people. And typically the way we do this is we find people of lesser you know, strength, lesser uh, abilities, greater sin capacity, and we find those people, we bring them into our purview, and then we compare ourselves to them, and we end up walking away from them thinking, well, I I feel very good. I feel really good about myself. I'm way better than them. I I read my Bible way more than they do. I'm way more spiritual than they are. I understand theology way more than they do. And you have this tendency to look at other people with contempt. Here's what Paul's saying. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't compare yourself with other people. But first of all, really, the idea is to understand who you are in your identity. Do you know that God gives you an identity? Do you know that? Here's the problem that we live in in this world. The world has this propensity to somehow peg certain identities upon us. And so there are people, I talk to them all the time, someone that might be struggling with alcoholism. They view themselves as an alcoholic. All right, or somebody who may have been a rape victim. They view themselves as merely a rape victim. That becomes the rest of their identity for the rest of their life. Or if they're not able to conceive or have a baby, they view themselves as incapable of conceiving, that they're barren. That's just, that's my identity. Or somebody who's not married, they view themselves as maybe damaged goods. I'm never, I'm never gonna get married. That becomes your identity. Either the sins that you've committed or the sins that have been committed against you. These become our identity. So we have unique ways whereby we try to get around this problem of identity. Here's what we do. We go shopping. I'm not kidding. We actually go shopping. You're like, seriously? No, I'm serious. We go shopping. We go buy clothes. Because you know what it is? Clothes shopping is not just simply buying stuff to cover our bodies. Because if it was, then we'd just go down to the fabric store and buy whatever's on sale and throw it around our body and just be as functional as it would be, as it could be, without any form. We wouldn't care about it. But what we're actually doing when we shop for clothes is we're actually also trying to find an identity. This is why a 15-year-old skate kid, skater kid is not going to go into Tommy Bahamas and buy a Hawaiian t-shirt. Because that's for 60-year-old guys and above. Not a 15-year-old skater kid, all right? Because 15-year-old is never going to be caught dead in a Tommy Bahamas. In the same way, 65, 75-year-old guy is not going to go into Coalition Skateboard Shop and buy some you know, shirt or clothing item from there. He's not going to buy a pair of glasses from Urban Outfitters. Because we oftentimes try to find our identity in what we wear, how we act. Some of you are like, you know, you hipster type, you're like, I don't do that. Like, your identity is thrift shop, all right? 
We all have these identities. We're like, I want to live according to this identity. And we live according to this because somehow, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with buying clothes and whatnot, but what happens oftentimes is we try to do that because we want to carve out an identity for ourselves. And so what happens is we start forming these cliques and these groups based upon how we look, the clothes that we have, the types of cars we have, the social economic status that we kind of project. And we divide on the basis of that. So the reality is what ends up happening is, you know, you get these young skater kids that are like, I'm not going to ever hang out with an older guy because he's, he wears Dockers. Or he wears, you know, a Hawaiian shirt. And, and everybody knows those aren't cool. But in reality is what happens is this identity is somehow becomes what governs us rather than the identity that God gives us in Christ. We're never really satisfied. And we end up looking at other people with contempt. We compare ourselves with other people and we get off feeling as if we're better than them. We have a better taste for style than someone else does, so therefore I can judge them. And Paul's saying, don't do that. So again, the question is, why? Because you know that God didn't do that with you? God didn't look at the color of your skin and say, "Mm mm-mm, I only take this type. God didn't look at how smart you are and say, I only take... 4.0 and above, 3.8, that's about it, and above. That's it. GPA, that's about it. Nobody else. I'm only looking for the best of the best. God doesn't look at us and say, I only take guys that wear diesel jeans. All right? God's like, I'll I'll take them all, all right? Crazy people that spend 250 bucks on diesel jeans and people who wear Tommy Bahamas and people that wear cut-off shorts, I'll take them all. I don't care who they are. And even the homeless dudes wearing rags in the street, I'll take them all. It doesn't matter who they are. Accept them all. Doesn't matter what they look like, how bad they smell. Doesn't matter what type of disabilities they have. I take them all. That's the gospel. And so what Paul is saying is that when you understand the gospel and how it transforms you, it has an implication for your life. That affects the way that you think. So when you look at other people that aren't like you, when the gospel impacts you, you realize, huh, I'm so unlike God, and yet God accepted me, so therefore they're so unlike me, I, I can, I'm free to accept them. But if you're not free, if you're not free, meaning you're still bound by social economic value system, you're still bound by the type of clothing, and that's your identity. You're still bound by the type of hairdo you have. You're still bound by the various types of you know, industry that you're involved in, and you can't get out of that and out of your circle to go into other places where there are other people that are totally nothing like you. At the end of the day, what you really have is a gospel issue. You don't get the gospel. What you don't need is to somehow just tell yourself, I've got to be better. I've got to accept people. I've got to be more nice. That's not what you need. What you need is to get the gospel first. You need to be transformed by it and understand what God has done for you through Jesus, that he accepted you. Even as you were a heretic, even as you were poor and marginalized and broken and hurting, he accepted you. Therefore, the gospel implication is that I, I actually can accept everybody doesn't matter who they are. doesn't matter what type of preferences or choices they live or make and types of evidences of sin that might be in their life. doesn't matter because that was all me and it. God accepted me and trusted me in Jesus Christ. Third thing is this, is that verse 5 talks about this responsibility of bearing one's load. I'm going to just look at this very quickly. It means one of two things, all right? You guys can make up your decision on this. It either means that we will one day stand before God by ourselves, not with somebody next to us. So if you're a kid and you're not going to be standing next to your dad in heaven, if you're, you know, you got a great grandma who loved Jesus, she's not going to be there with you in heaven. You're going to stand before God on your own. This is why Romans chapter 14, verse 12 says this, each of us will give an account uh, of himself to God alone. It will just be us and God giving an account. That's one way to look at it. Another way to look at this is that we have various responsibilities or loads the way that Paul is going to use it here. The word load here is actually different than the word burden. And it's this idea that we have these responsibilities that God gives us, and he wants us to live them out. So in connection to helping other people that have burdens, we also have our own responsibilities that God wants us to live out and carry the weight and the responsibility of of those things that God gives us. The final one is this, is the gospel implications also involve 
us being generous with our time, our treasures, and our talents. And in verse 6, it says this, the one who has taught the word or instructed the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, again, there's at least two different ways to look at this. Most commentators and Bible scholars, I think, would look at this word, uh, this passage here, as sort of a means of saying that if you have a pastor and he's preaching the word of God to you, instructing you in the word of God, um, then make sure that you pay him. Make sure that you take good care of him and that you share all good things with him. Um, and I, I think the reality is, is that there are other places in Paul's writing where Paul actually mentions that or speaks to that effect. First Timothy chapter five or 17 is one of those verses where Paul says this, let the elders who rule well over you be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, don't muzzle the ox or tread out its grain. The laborers uh, deserves his wages. So Paul is advocating for if a pastor is teaching the word of God, if he's faithful, if he's leading you to Jesus, make sure that you give him a salary so that he can live and survive and take care of his family. Um, the reality is, is that you, Calvary Slow, take very good care of me. I'm very thankful. I'm very privileged and very blessed that I'm able to actually do this full time. I love it. I love my job. I love what I get to do. It's a great honor and a privilege for me. However, I don't necessarily think that that's exactly what Paul has in mind in this particular context. And I'll tell you why. Because to me, it seems a little out of place. Paul's talking about helping people that are struggling in their burdens, helping them carry their weight, being humble in your view of yourself. And then all of a sudden, Paul talks about making sure the pastor gets a paycheck. Maybe, but it, to me, it seems as if it's a little disjointed or disconnected. What I think Paul may be referring to, and this is, again, this is my thought. You can just, you ultimately got to take it back to the word and see what you think. But this is my thought. I think what Paul is saying is that in the context of helping others that are hurting, that somebody who's bearing the weight and the load of somebody is doing really the work of speaking the word of God in someone else's life. So in other words, the way that you help someone with the burdens, the way that you help someone with the their trappings of sin and the oppression because of religious experiences and things like that that are not Christian, that are not sanctified, not giving God glory. The way that you help them is you take them back to the word of God. And God uses people in, that, in their lives to instruct them back to the word of God. So in other words, one, you know, it's a simple point that I would make about this is that one of the things we kind of get a chance to look at is that the Bible is very important in the early church. This is amazing that Paul actually references this. He's like, look, if somebody teaches you guys the word of God, instructs you in the word of God, and helps you out of your moment of pressure and struggle and burden carrying and all these difficulties, if they're using the word of God, Paul says, look, just use the word of God. That's what you need. So he points out the fact that the early church is very into the word of God. Just so that you know, even though we live in a culture today where the word of God is very much so under attack, we really want to make certain that we always bear that banner. I mean, we fly that banner here. We fly that banner very proudly here. We believe in the inspiration of the scriptures. We believe in the infallibility of the word of God. We hold that. We fly that here. But the point that I think Paul is trying to say is that all of us, no matter who you are, if you're a Christian, the handbook that you use to help other people who are bearing burdens is the word of God. You take them back to the word of God which ultimately is to bring them back, not to just to a bunch of rules and regulations, but to bring them back to Jesus. That's the way the Bible is to be read. And so what I think Paul is saying here is that when people are helping you out, bringing you into the word of God, sharing God's scriptures with you, setting you free from the burdens that you bear, helping you along in your walk with Christ, leading you to greater levels of freedom in Jesus, he says, make sure you share your life openly with them. Help them. I mean, in other words, on a practical level, if this person's speaking to your life and they're like, you know what, let's go out to eat. I mean, offer to pay for them or something. You know, buy them a cup of coffee. Take good care of them. Be generous with, with what you have because they're being very generous with you. Don't be stingy with your life. Don't be stingy with the goods that you have. Be a community is what Paul's saying that is very generous with our time, with our treasure, and with our talents. Why? Because God was very generous with his time, treasure, and talents. God gave great, good gifts to all of us generously, liberally, because he loves us. Okay, does that make sense? So what I think the point that Paul is trying to say is that in this community where people are helping others to get away from weights of sin. So again, what we learn here very quickly is that 
The Bible is going to tell us, and Paul is going to tell us, that the early church, they're very concerned about sin. The reason why sin is a big deal is because sin takes people and binds them. It keeps them from being free because God loves us. He wants us to be free. So false ideas about God, false ideas about other levels of relationship and humanity actually are binding for us. And Jesus wants to liberate us. So in other words, having a proper view of the gospel actually allows us to join in on the mission, the work that God calls us to, so that we can be free. We can be free with our money. We can give liberally and joyfully, not get all freaked out when someone starts talking about money. There he goes again, talking about money. I'm not into that. Is that what this is all about? No, but the reality is, is that if money is your God, anytime it gets talked about being given away, it will freak out. Because that's, that's, what, that's what gods do. If gods are threatened, they freak out. But if your God is Jesus, he makes a good savior. Money makes a horrible savior. It's a horrible God. If you live for money, it's a horrible God. Sometimes you have it, sometimes you don't. When you do have it, you feel like you are obligated to go out and spend it or you're obligated to hold on to it. So you either become a miser or you become somebody that gets in debt. And when you don't have it, it mocks you. It's a horrible God. But when God's God, and you're sowing your life into the lives of other people, liberally, joyfully, happily, money becomes a vehicle that you can freely give away, throw into people's lives, throw into the mission of the church, because God's God. And we can, we're free to give everything away, even our time. Our treasures, our talents, if we, God's given us abilities and a mind to think, we can sow that back into the mission of the church because God's God. Our treasure's not God. Our talents are not God. God's God. So I can liberally, joyfully give back. Why? Because that's Christian duty? No, because that's what God did for you. Do you get that? Living out gospel implications without understanding, first of all, gospel transformation will either set you on a course whereby you will end up in despair or you'll become arrogant. I want to finish with three quick questions and we're done. The first question is this, how, how do you read your Bible? I think these are important questions because sometimes if you read your Bible mainly harvesting commands and indicatives and implications and imperatives. In other words, you're just looking for things that will just speak to you. In other words, when you read your Bible, you're just looking for those verses that say, do this, do that, love this person, act this way, give this thing away, whatever. That's all that you do. And your chief number one purpose and goal in reading the Bible is not to see Jesus. I think you're reading your Bible wrong. Honestly, you're, you're reading your Bible wrong. I think I have the backing of Jesus to prove that as well. Jesus told his disciples on the road to Emmaus. They're talking about all sorts of things that have just transpired the last few days. And Jesus says, listen, he preached to them from the prophets through Moses all the way to the day in which Jesus was there. And he says, all of these things were that which spoke of and testified of Jesus. He says, and you didn't see it. He rebukes and upbraids the religious leaders. And he says, you guys search the scriptures because in them, in the scriptures, you think you have life by living out all these indicatives and all these imperatives and all these 613 some odd commands. But in reality, you don't have life because you've never seen me and you've never been set free. John Piper said this, that we love the Bible in the same way that we love our eyes. We don't like have this love affair with our eyes. Like, ah, oh, beautiful eyes. Like, if you do, that's weird. Um, but the point of the matter is, we love our eyes because our eyes actually allow us to see sunsets and see the birth of newborn babies. And our eyes allow us to see people get baptized. And our eyes allow us to see color. So we love our eyes because of what we're able to see and engage and rejoice in. In the same way we love our Bibles because our Bibles enable us to see the beauty of Jesus. Do you read your Bible first and foremost with the intention of seeing Jesus? That's what I mean by gospel transformation first and then gospel implications fall in suit. Second thing is this, are you in community? Are you in community? Here's what I mean. Are you isolated? 
Or have you separated yourself to the point where nobody's speaking in your life? There's nobody in your life at all. I talk to guys like this all the time. A lot of times it's guys. It's dudes. Like, I can do it on my own. I'm a Christian. I do stuff. I can figure it out on my own, right? I mean, guys are the guys that are usually when they have a map, they don't need anybody telling them where to go, what to do. You can just figure it out on your own. And the reality is you can't. You will get lost. The same is true in life. Is that if you have this mentality of like, I'm just going to go rogue, all right? You will get lost. You will get lost. And what will happen is your lostness will actually lead to you being trapped in sin. You will, you'll end up there. You'll end up there. And if you're married and you're rogue, then what you will do is you will inadvertently actually bring your wife on that same path and you will have to be responsible to somehow not only get yourself back, but also a wife whom you misled. So I ask you again, are you in community? Do you live in community? Do you live in open community where your life is open to the inspection of other people speaking to you, bearing your burdens, carrying the weight of things that you're going through, shouldering the difficulties and the hardships that you're going through, knowing how to lead you and guide you? Are you bearing the burdens of other people or are you just simply isolated and gone rogue? Final question is this. Are are you... And do you see yourself on mission with the church? Or do you just simply view church as something you do on Sunday morning for an hour and a half, and you endure with the guy who talks very long? I mean, I think sometimes people even come, they're just like, that's their penance. They're like, I'm doing really bad. My life sucks. I know what I'll do is I'll just endure an hour-long sermon from the guy who has no hair. That's it. That's it. And I'll feel really good. All right? Are, are you in mission? Are you on mission with the church? Do you see yourself actually as participating with the mission that God is doing to redeem the world? Or are you just a sampler? You come to church and you view church in the same way maybe some people sample wine, taste it, circulate it around a little bit, spit it out. That sermon sucked. Maybe next week it'll be a little bit better. All right? Maybe next week they'll do something about the lights, make sure it's not too dark in here. Maybe next week they'll fix those stupid typos in the bulletin. Are you just a sampler? You just come here and you look for things that are wrong and out of place and out of joint and out of socket, and you complain and gripe about those things, or are you on mission? Do you view the church as God's vehicle to reach the world? And are you on mission with the church? Do you give? Do you give financially? Do you give of your time? Do you engage? Do you look for opportunities when there's needs that arise? Do you jump after those needs? Or you just wait for somebody else to engage those things? That's what Paul is saying. If you get the gospel and transformed by it, the implications of it will be this vast array of life rescuing mission work everywhere you go, beginning here. Because you just saw there's a lot of people here, and I'm certain there's a lot more that should have stood up that didn't stand up, that are going through difficult times. It starts here. There's a lot of people hurting. And if this is the church, and these are people that have met Jesus, think about the people in your workplace. Think about the people in your neighborhood that don't know Jesus, that don't and are not brought into a a community of faith like this. Who's going to reach them? It can't be me. I can't. God's called you to do that but he's not called you to just go out and try to do all this stuff on the basis of your own energy and strength. Because again, like I said, you'll end up either in futility or you will end up being very arrogant. What you need first and foremost is you need to go back to Jesus and you need to see who Jesus is and what he's done for you and fall at his feet and worship him and be transformed by him. If you're not a Christian, what you don't need is you don't need to listen to everything I just said and say, okay, that's the path to being a better person. That's not the path to being a better person. That's the path to futility if you try to do it without the power of transforming power of the gospel. You won't be changed. You'll just become miserable. Does that make sense? First of all, what you need is Jesus. You need to go back to Jesus. If you're a Christian and you're not living these things and they're not a consistency in your life with the things that Paul said, what you need is Jesus. At the end of the day, we need to go back to Jesus and be reminded of the transforming power of the cross. I'm going to pray. We're going to worship. We're going to respond. We're going to respond by singing. We're going to respond by partaking of communion. We partake of communion as a reminder to us 
of the gospel in tangible form. You eat the bread, you remind yourself that Jesus' body was actually broken for you. You drink the cup, you remember the fact that Jesus' blood was actually spilled for you. It's the gospel in tangible form. We'll sing, it's worship. Some of you may need to confess sin and just clear your conscience before God and go back to Jesus. Some of you need to confess sin of trying to do things for God that is not motivated by faith. Some of you need to do that. Some of you need to just simply trust Jesus in a simple way of just realizing that he loves you. Some of you need to simply accept the fact that God loves you in Jesus. Yes, God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you so much that if you are in sin, that he wants to change you from that to being free. Because sin binds us. Sin oppresses us. And he wants to set us free to follow him. I'm going to pray. We'll respond. Jesus, thank you for the cross. We worship you now. We sing to you now. We confess sin to you now. We partake of communion now as a way of remembering and reminding ourselves again and again and preaching the gospel to us again and again because we need to hear it again. Because God, the default mode of our heart is to always somehow go back into some sort of broken treadmill, some sort of cul-de-sac where we're trying desperately to get you to like us. And yet, God, the cross, what we really need to do is just simply trust the fact that you love us. You love us. And you've communicated that to us. We need to cling to Jesus, trust Jesus, look to Jesus. So we worship you now.